In a career spanning several decades, David Mitchell has firmly established himself as Mr Entertainment. His broad range of skills has seen him contribute to the industry as a writer, director and producer across all platforms, stage, radio, television, film and live performance. As a writer, he has provided material for performers and personalities including Barbara Streisand, Bob Hope, Michael Parkinson and Barry Humphreys. This has given him vast accolades and a repertoire of riveting anecdotes. For the stage, he wrote the musical better known as B, about Sydney eccentric B Miles. Collaborating with John Michael Hausen and Melvin Morrow, the triumvirate of writers created the stage musical Shout! The Legend of the Wild One, which broke box office records around Australia. Their second collaboration resulted in the hugely successful Dusty, the original pop diva, which took $25 million at the box office during its initial run and won four Helpman Awards and Melbourne's Green Room Award for Best New Australian Production. He's part of the team responsible for the legendary live shows at the venues Capriccio's and Kinsella's in Sydney, performances that are still discussed today. A prolific freelance television producer, David's shows include The Mike Walsh Show, Parkinson in Australia, Saturday Night Clive and The Dame Edna Experience. His Australian Royal Bicentennial Concert in 1988, which starred Olivia Newton-John, Peter Allen and Kylie Minogue, amongst many others, was described by International Showbiz Bible Variety as pure, unremitting, unalloyed entertainment. David Mitchell certainly proves that there is no business like show business. Have you known her, known her long? You probably worked with uh, her. Well, I actually um, I shared a flat with, or a house with Tony Sheldon back in the 1970s. And so I got to know her, you know, then as sort of Tony's mum. But I was always a fan of hers. I mean, I went and saw Oliver and all those shows when, um, I, you know, I was younger. And then I did a summer theatre season down in Nowra. And we did a production of Anything Goes which Dudley Goldman, who owned the um, the Philip Theatre, who changed its name to the Rich Brook Theatre after his children, Richard and Brooke, uh, and he came down and saw our production and considered bringing it into town, but he ended up doing his own and got uh, Tony to play Reno. Right. Um, Tony, and Tony Gapin played Billy. Rabina Beard was in it. And it, was, it was a good production. Ron Fraser was Moonface Martin. And... Uh, and but and so I sort of and one of my friends Virginia Portingale who was actually shared the same house with Sheldon and me, she was one of Reno's angels and uh, and she uh, so I used to hang around backstage you know because I knew her and I knew Robin Mose was one of the other angels and Robin and I worked a lot in TV and things so yeah no I've known Lamont and then when we when Lamont went to America um, she went over there to try a her luck over there and got quite a bit of TV work and Starsky and Hutch and Bob Newhart show she was hilarious in that and things like that and uh, we came over to do um, a Mike Walsh bicentennial American bicentennial special in 1976 and she worked on that as a researcher uh, and, and lined up interviews with obviously with Helen and with Olivia and Coral Brown we did a whole panel of Australian Australians in Hollywood and um, and then when I was doing the interviews with John Michael Housen over there, she would line those up too in Hollywood and come out with us on the interviews and, you know, met all her heroines and heroes. The, I think the, the best um, one we did was Edith Head, you know, the, the costume, oh, the costume designer. designer. Yeah. And uh, she was up for an Oscar that year for Airport 75, I think. And so we went to her house to interview her. And Edith liked uh, to have a couple of glasses of wine so that when the interview was over she you know she popped the wine open I think I don't think she had that many friends pop in or whatever but she loved seeing us and John Michael you know was you know ooing and ahhing over all her Oscar drawings and all that sort of stuff and and um, Tony would have another drink and then suddenly you know uh, the waiter would come out with a beautiful rice arancini and they'd be had and another bottle of wine would be open and and Edith had had this very well-known sort of um, fringe bang of, of hair that sat on her forehead. And one uh, time during the interview, or no, while she was just chatting over drinks, 
one uh, Lamont noticed that one hair was sort of drifting away from the from the bang in the front, and she went to to pull it. <laughs> and of course, it was a wig. It was, it was a hairpiece, <laughs> and she stops because Edith went ah, <laughs> and she realised, of course, don't pull the hair, <laughs> Tony, as if. So that would have been could have been a a tragic sight with, to to have a lump of Edith Head's hair in one's hand. And, and how poetic that your son has uh, recently produced that series on the ABC called The Recording Studio. That's right. Which has given Lamond a, a second... Yeah, yeah. well, it, he was um, looking for a showbiz sort of story as, because all the, the stories are, you know, they're sort of ordinary people or people with a, you know, a bit of history and he wanted at least one or two prose. And he, he asked me, you know, did I think Lorraine Desmond would be right? And I said, well, Tony Lamont would be absolutely perfect because she's got this very sad story about Frank, her husband, committing suicide and having to go on and sing As Long As He Needs Me in Oliver on an opening night in Adelaide. And so they went over uh, to her place and chatted with her. And um, my daughter-in-law is Gemma Murphy and she's... Um, Jennifer Murphy, you know, of Visa Visa Fame's daughter and Spud Murphy's daughter. And uh, she produced that particular episode and she and um, Tony got on really well. And um, it really was a a very moving thing. And I actually posted it on a a couple of Broadway uh, Facebook pages, you know, for American consumption. And uh, people were going crazy over her. And uh, fortunately, I'd done a... um, Equity Lifetime Achievement montage of her career and um, I was able to load that up and so we've got all these fans in America now who just adore Tony Lamont so which is great yeah. she deserves it it's it's quite a um, well she belongs to a showbiz dynasty doesn't she that the, the family her parents and her children and her sister it's um, at her own personal story it, it needs to be a, a TV series well, in fact, or a it's film. Funny, it's funny. Tony Sheldon and I actually wrote uh, a treatment for a miniseries called Front of the Train, and it was about the uh, parallel stories of Gloria Dawn and Tony Lamond because they both were on the show train, and Gloria was in the um, at the back of the train because she was with the Carnies and doing the you know the uh, the, the the circus sort of shows. Tony was in the Sawleys show, which was one step up. And Robert Helpman used to be in the front carriage because the J.C. Williamson's ballet would tour and he was in there. And Helpman used to tell the story about uh, Princess Chilliwingi, who was who was a, a pygmy who toured the, the Carney circuit. And he, even though he was at the front and she was way at the back, uh, he, he developed a friendship with her. And uh, every t- town that they went to, Princess Chilliwingi had to be put into a Hessian bag and carried off the train because hundreds of townspeople would arrive to see the show train arrive and they, would, um, they, they didn't want them to see the pygmies. They wanted them to pay for them when they got to the showground. Right. So they ha- she had to be taken out in a, in a Hessian bag. And Helpman said to her, how, you know, your royalty... Um, and you know you must feel terrible being c- carted out in a in a Hessian bag every station. And she said, "Well, it's not being put in a Hessian bag. It's how you act when you come out of the bag that counts." And Helpman said he always took that on as a uh, a motto for life. And when he actually opened Ross Coleman's dance studios, he said that's what the the studios are in the business of bringing people out of bags. But anyway, that's a sidelight. The the actual main story was about. Um, Gloria, who then moved uh, up into you know legitimate theatre and musicals, and Tony, who did the same, and of course they both ended up sharing the role of um, Mama, Rose. Mama Rose in uh, in Gypsy, and um, and set, you know under sad circumstances because Gloria had cancer at that stage. So that's the sort of bittersweet ending of it, and and uh, the effect of of it on their their kids because Donna, of course, was played one of the Donna, the girl, Lee. Donna Lee, who was Gloria's daughter, played uh, one of the um, the Hollywood blondes, and so she had to sit backstage and hear the announcement saying, Unf- uh, on in tonight's performance, the part of Madame Rose will not be played by Gloria Dawn, and the audience would go, oh, but will be played by Tony Lamont, oh, and so you know, and she had to go through that and hear that every night over the tannoy, but. Um, 
apparently the same sort of thing happened when Liza Minnelli took over from Gwen Verdon in Chicago and in New York. They'd say in tonight's performance, uh, the role of Roxy Hart will not be played by Gwen Verdon, oh, but will be played by Liza Minnelli. Ah, so you know, <laughs> you, you wish the audiences could be a bit more considerate about the performers backstage <laughs> yeah, exactly. and what they have to deliver. But um, yeah, yeah, no, the Lamont story is, is fascinating, and you know, it just documents from from travel, you know, touring troops in trains right up to you know her son being nominated for a Tony Award, her exactly. sister sort of. Uh, launching the feminist movement, or one of the feminist yeah, yeah, yeah. stages with exactly. I Am Woman. You know? Well, well um, we actually watched the Tony Awards at my house. Tony Lamont came over to watch them. And, of course, Sheldon didn't win, but uh, he, he'll always be known as Tony-nominated actor Tony Sheldon. But the great thing is we've, we've got a recording of Lamont doing As Long As He Needs Me Now, which That's right. people can access in iTunes. That's right. It's on iTunes. In, fa- in fact, the whole album's been nominated... Uh, in the, this year's Arias for Best Soundtrack Album. So. Oh, brilliant. Mm, brilliant. That's good. So tell me, David, is there no business like show business? Well, I've enjoyed my brief foray into it. I had no showbiz whatsoever in my family, uh, but I sort of always harboured a great you know, desire to be a part of it. I used to go... Uh, we were from Melbourne, and I used to go to the uh, studio audience at GTV9 and see the Tarak show, Happy Hammond, and uh, in Melbourne tonight when I got a bit older. In fact, I fainted one day, I came home, and my my dad, who uh, liked liked a a beer and a bet, uh, had been out somewhere and met Bert Newton and brought him home for a drink. And so I walked in, and there, sitting at the bar, was was Bert. Wow. Yeah, royalty, showbiz royalty. Absolutely. Uh, So So you uh, grew up in Melbourne? I grew up in Melbourne, and... uh, but my mother married, uh, remarried uh, a Sydney guy, and I moved up to Sydney in the right. in the sixties, right. and uh, and uh, started doing law. I thought, you know, because I w- my mother said I was a good ar- arguer, uh, that law would be a good thing to do. Uh, but it was more that I liked Perry Mason as a show, and <laughs> <laughs> it was shows that I was more interested in. So I only did a year of law, and then. Uh, I did a year working uh, on the crew at Channel 9 as an audio operator. Got sacked by Sir Frank Packer um, but for sitting around. But then Bruce Gingell came around and said, don't take any, we don't take any notice of what he says, you're hired again. Uh, and I did that for a year and then went back to uni to study drama and did a course at University of New South Wales in majoring in drama. Um, was there was writing a contingent of that course? No, well, it wasn't really. Um, we studied plays, of course, but uh, and that was at the time. Like NIDA was at the you know on the same campus. Um, ours was more an academic course, but we used to go and see all the NIDA shows and and uh, Wendy Hughes and Mel Gibson and Bill Charlton and all these fabulous people. We, you know, were were all studying, and we sort of got to see all their you know their graduation shows and all that sort of stuff. But no, not writing, except it, it was just after I left university, um, we were going to do a production of Anything Goes, which we'd done down at Nowra. And um, we were going to bring it to, to Sydney. And then Dudley Goldman, who was the, um, the manager of the Philip Street Theatre, or the Philip Theatre, which became the Richbrook, named after his son and daughter, Richard and Brooke, um, they decided they would do Anything Goes and not our production. So we had all the costumes, we had booked Hazel Phillips to star, and we had a, a full cast, including Rosalie Howard and Douglas Hedge, and uh, it was a really, you know, crack production, um, but we couldn't put it on. So Hazel said, well, why, why don't we just write our, our own show? And I said, oh, I don't know about anything about writing. She said, oh, well how hard can it be? You know, we'll link the songs, the first jukebox musical. We just used a lot of 1930s um, standards and uh, wrote a, a show about, sort of loosely based on that uh, uh, movie Stage Door, you know, where all the actors live in a boarding house. Yep, and this, yep. this, was the, this was the story of this. And, uh, and we, it was called Hot Pants because it was in the 70s when Hot Pants was a fashion statement and the Hot Pants looked very much like those 30s dancing um, shorts that the girls wore and so we wrote that and it, it did quite well and I thought oh well I can write so I moved on to writing things like number 96 and uh, and again working with Sheldon on a shocking show called The Unisexes 
which was a uh, like a spin-off of number 96 about a whole lot of kids including uh, Tony Sheldon and Tina Bursell living in a house making uh, designer jeans uh, <laughs> unisex designer <laughs> jeans you wonder why it only ran four episodes anyway that was fun to do but at least it was green lit and it got some sort it of production went, well yeah well I mean I think because it was a Cash Harmon production and they'd done number 96 and what is uh, something for the, uh, a youth? They wanted something for Audience. a youth market, but yeah. unfortunately, um, Sweet, though he is David Sale and uh, Johnny White, were, weren't really tapped into what the youth were really interested in, and it wasn't making designer jeans. <laughs> you were going to Channel 9 then in the audience to see a lot of... Yeah, yeah, yeah when I was what, a kid. What about live theatre? Um, with the family uh, sort of taking you to shows and musicals? Uh, my... My uh, best friend at school's mum took us to West Side Story, the original okay. Australian production, yeah. uh, and which was amazing. And then, uh, and then, uh, the people who lived downstairs from us uh, in in our flat um, were friends of Jill Perryman and um, Kevin Johnson, and so they took us to the uh, a, a matinee of Bye Bye Birdie, and we were invited backstage and. Kevin demonstrated that he could drink a uh, a can of beer and burp on, and for a young child that was you know that's, that's magic. Yeah, that was magic. So I saw that and I saw um, Sound of Music with June Bronhill and Patty McGrath was Patty Newton now uh, was played Liesel in that production, and then I saw uh, My Fair Lady with a takeover cast. It was after Robin Bailey and Bunty Turner had left. So I, yes, I did see lots of shows, and and my parents took me to in Sydney to see, um, I think it was called Just a Show with um, Barry Humphreys as Dame Edna, and then years that's later that's one of his first incarnations. That's one of his right? first shows. Yeah, yeah. great. What about uh, the flicks? Were you you're going off? Yeah, to that on yeah. A weekly I used basis? to go and see all those. I was sort of obsessed with um, again musicals, uh, sound and music, and all those sort of. Those so you're gathering, uh, I guess, a lot of artistic references, which you are then using to inform. You're writing, yeah, and, I suppose and so. Putting on a show, yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I did. I wrote a little musical for television years ago called "The Girl from Moonaloo," starring Jackie Weaver and David Atkins and Nolene Brown, and um, and that was very much influenced by uh, "Singing in the Rain." You know, with a, it was about a little boy who uh, was very shy, and and uh, he he gets put up to audition for the part of Ginger Meggs on the radio. And by some twist of fate, Jackie Weaver has to provide uh, provide the voice on the on his audition record because he's too nervous to do so. And of course, he wins the competition. He gets cast as Ginger Meggs, and he can't can't provide spit, the voice. Can't provide the voice. So Jackie <laughs> ends up playing Ginger Meggs on the radio. And uh, of course, the uh, the ruse is uncovered in a, in, in a similar way to. Uh, to uh, singing in the rain when the when the curtain opens and you see Jackie behind the uh, behind the curtain providing the voice, but uh, was, I mean I've always loved that sort of old time sort of show. I did another there was another series on the ABC called TV Follies, which were, again were uh, mini musicals, jukebox musicals again like you would choose the songs and and then write a story around them, and uh, the the series was. Like there was one set in a speakeasy. There was one set on a troop ship, with Geraldine Turner. There was another one set. Uh, this one was in at the Copacabana. It was a Hollywood edition, making a move, a movie based on Barry Manilow's song, the Copacabana. And we had Debbie Byrne playing uh, the young Lola, and uh, Kathy Lloyd the old Lola, and uh, Normie Rowe played sort of the uh, the. The villain? The male, no, he no, was no. The, he was the handsome male lead. Tony. No, no, no. Is oh, it Tony? No, no. Uh, yes, uh, Tony. Yes, he sailed across the bar. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, right. yeah. That's right. You were ahead of your time because, of course, it, they it did, did make come a musical. musical. I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, it tells a story, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, you've embraced social media big time, I think. I mean, you keep us all posted of events that are happening and and share your great. Um, as you like to say, anecdotage. <laughs> um, and it, it keeps us very entertained and informed. What, what do you like most about social media? Because it's a new wave of entertainment, isn't it? Yes. Um, well, I'd, what I don't like about it is uh, too much uh, 
sort of nastiness and and just trolling. Uh, trolling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can really, if you look up the um, the the uh, profiles of some of the people that say horrible things, usually you see a, a pathetic sort of hotted up car as their profile picture, or a pit bull dog or something <laughs> like that. You know, the sort of people you would cross the road to avoid. But uh, but no, there are lots of groups of, of like-minded people who who enjoy telling stories about uh, Broadway and uh, and keeping up to date with what's going on in theatre and show business in Australia. So that they're the ones I tend to gravitate towards. Yeah, folk that you wouldn't otherwise meet, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that's right. In, in the in the olden days, it'd be a pen friend, I guess. Well, that's right. Yeah. A, particular... a lot of the people, yes, you don't meet, and even though I don't. I don't. I don't befriend um, many people that I don't know. I, I, you know, I like. I'll contribute to their posts, but I tr- try and keep my Facebook friends as actual friends. You know, people I I know that I, if I saw them, I'd know who they were. Um, but I do like reading other people's. I mean, and amazing. I mean, one of my favourite person who is a Facebook friend, and I don't know, so I've just um, blown that theory down. Uh, is Mamie Van Doren. Oh, know? yes, yes. Now, Mamie Van Doren, for those who... She must who, be an age now. She's 86 years right. of age. Yep. She's still very glamorous. She was married to Ray Anthony, the um, the band leader, and they recently had a reunion. Uh, they've, they've been long divorced, but they had a sort of a, a get-together. But she's still very glamorous um, and a fiercely intelligent. She hates Donald Trump, so she's, she's a friend of mine for that. And... Um, and she just tells great stories, and I just love uh, her mind. And and uh, and she was, you know, obviously a, a big star in Hollywood. She was second tier, like if Marilyn Monroe was the blonde bombshell, Jane Mansfield and Mamie Van Doren were like a rung down. But she was in movies with um, Clark Gable and Tony Curtis, and you know, a lot of you know a lot of people. Um, and she's still you know as bright as a button so 86 years old shows you you can do it mm. if you try she says be as old as you can <laughs> were your parents keen about a career in the arts they weren't my um my stepfather thought it was a shocking thing because uh, he had no absolutely no uh, grounding in it but then i did a show once and got a story about me in the in the newspaper and suddenly he thought oh oh it must be all right then so he actually uh came around in the end when he saw that you know I could make some money out of it and uh, uh, but but he thought you know originally it was just a loser loser pursuit yeah, yeah I think mine did as well they just need that confirmation that that you can do it yes that's right and uh, and they were I, I I think they said that one of the proudest moments was uh, the bicentennial concert that I did at the entertainment center for Charles and die in 1988 um, because it was, we had a budget of three million dollars in 1988. Can you imagine? That's huge. You know, now that would be 15 million dollars or something for one night show, and uh, we had the, you know, Peter Allen, Olivia Newton-John, um, Kylie, Kylie, um, Paul John, Hogan. I imagine. Paul Ho- no, 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 we didn't no have point. Paul Hogan. Uh, we had. Uh, Is that the one that, that Bert Newton was on an no, elephant? No, no, that was the opening of the entertainment right. centre, but. Uh, no, this one we had, uh, it was just incredible. We had like every rock and roll artist through the years, you know, from uh, Cold Joy right through the, the Deltones and the, the Little Stevie and the Easy Beats and, and the Divinals and, and, and right up to Kylie. Um, and uh, we did a big sequence from Lola Montez, the Australian musical about uh, the gold rush and Jackie Love played Lola and John English was the sort of head guy of the town singing southerly busters coming and all that sort of stuff it was just an amazing show i mean the costumes alone were uh, about half a million dollars international showbiz bible variety uh, labeled it as pure unremitting unalloyed entertainment oh well you've done your research (laughs) (laughs) that's that's not a bad i don't um, get those sort of reviews every day it's probably (laughs) going to be um chipped on my tombstone yeah worth hanging on to uh, so the craft of writing, what, uh, where do you find your muse? Is it necessity that sort of, uh, or, or, or an idea just comes to you in the middle of the night, someone suggests yes, something I to do, you? Yes, I do sometimes. A shower is always good for yeah. an idea. Yeah. Um, I suppose to, it's a place where you can just completely relax. Yeah, and that's right. Of, yeah. And you just think, oh, well, that'd be good. 
Um, but, you know, it's, I've been extremely lucky because uh, the two big musicals that I've done, uh, Shout and Dusty, uh, it's very rare to get, well, one musical produced, to get two done and both of them to make huge amounts of money. I mean, you know, they have their critics because they are jukebox musicals yet again uh, and they're not, they don't have original scores, but it does take quite a bit of... Um, Skill, skill to, to weave I, that together. Yeah, to actually weave it together and, and to make the songs relate to the story. I mean, a, a lot of like uh, a lot of the jukebox musicals like um, Jersey Boys and uh, the Carol King one, Beautiful, they tell, a, they tell a story, but they use the songs always as a, in a recording studio or a, a, on a concert or, or something. Or one of the first ones, you know, Buddy, the, the whole yeah, second right. act was, it a, was concert. a concert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Which was good. Jolson. Uh, which yeah. Was, yeah, which was good. But with our, our ones that we've, um, we tried to actually wrangle the songs in many cases into the plot and it sort of works quite well I think yeah we're talking about Shout the story well, of the both wild one Johnny O'Keefe that, yeah that, that one I mean we had like I'm Counting On You became a duet for him and Marianne his wife um, and uh, She Wears My Ring was sung at their wedding and so so it was it's it was a uh, there were concert sequences in it as well but uh, it it was like a musical, I, I think the differences between the buddies and the and the um, and the Carol King beautifuls are a bit similar to the differences between the Freddie Mercury uh, biopic and the Elton, and the John. Elton John one. Yeah. I, my, I favour the Elton John approach because it opens it up to fantasy and production and dancing and using the songs to tell a story. Mm. Whereas the other one uh, is brilliant, uh, you know, and was hugely successful. Um, but it is it's a it's a, a dramatized documentary. If you yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting when you hear the the, the, the people you know friends, colleagues, etc. Comment on oh I like that one. It was better than the other one or whatever. Mm. Is it? No, mm. no, they're they're completely two yeah, different animals. Yeah, they're two different animals. Yeah. But You're I, liking that probably because you prefer the fantastical or that's right. You want a, just a straight biography. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But I I, I lean for, for something I would want to do. Towards the uh, lead and towards the Elton, but it doesn't diminish the the other one at all. Well, they're 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 not only two great contributions to our Australian musicals. You've also written others like Better Known as B. Yeah, yeah. Well, sadly, Better Known as B has never been produced in Sydney. It's only been it was done twice at the Q out at Penrith, once with Jan Adele, and once again with Tony Lamond, and then it was done in Melbourne in a rather sad production with Val Lehman. Um, as B, um, but the the Q ones were hugely successful, and John Frost was at one stage thinking of, of touring it, but in those days he wasn't really interested in Australian product, so it's never been done. And, and it's funny they did a thing up up in Kings Cross um, recently um, of a night in the Cross. Did you go? Yes, yeah. yes, at that immersion theatre. That's right. Thing, yeah. yeah, which I thought was terrific, and. Uh, and um, Virginia Gay played B. Miles in that, and and, and harangued the the uh, the crowds with her Shakespeare and all that, as B. used to do. Which is an extraordinary character, isn't she? B. She Miles. was amazing. She was a social uh, from a rich family. A family owned uh, a men's department store called Peeps in George Street in Sydney. But she was, you know, she was skewed. She wasn't conventional. Uh, she hung around uh, around the cross, and she used to ride on the the running boards of, of cars and swim with a knife at Bondi for the sharks. And <laughs> she was, you know, a crazy dame. And, and she was sort of like a Sally Bowles figure uh, when she was young, beautiful. But she was, her father had to put her into a mental institution and uh, they got her out uh, with the help of uh, Smith's Weekly, which was a big newspaper. And she then became sort of known as the terror of the taxis because she'd hop in cabs and uh, go on trams, etc., and not not pay the, the fines. And she hung a sign round her neck saying Shakespeare quotations, uh, two shillings, one shilling, sixpence. And um, I actually saw her at um, down at Central at Eddie Avenue because I used to get the bus there to school. And uh, and I, all the other kids dared me to go up and you know give her some of my lunch money for a reading. So I. Gave her two bob and got the full to be or not to be, from B, and uh, 
and I just was hypnotised about her ever since. I thought she was a fantastic subject for a musical. And uh, Tony Reese wrote the music, and uh, and it it was terrific. So, I mean, maybe one day Virginia Gay could play B and do it. I think it'd be perfect at the Hayes, really, yes. because yeah. you know it's up the road from where she used to. She used to sleep in the stormwater channel at Rushcutters Bay. She right. carried she carried a pound note pinned inside her great coat, army great coat. She wore a tennis shade and an army great coat and sand shoes all the time. And that, she called that her visible means of support. So the cops, if the cops ever you know, tried to arrest her for being a vagrant, she could say, look, I've got a pound. And that was pinned inside her coat. But she had still had money. She used to, she went to the bank, got out a whole lot of money and, and hired a taxi and said, take me to Perth. Wow. And she paid the cabbie, you know, every hundred miles, gave him his, his flag fall and his... Um, and his mileage, and uh, they went to Perth and paddled in the swan and picked wild, wildflowers and drove home again. There'd be great resonance, I think, in, in a show like that being staged at the Hayes. Yeah, I think so yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, similarly, um, Arthur Stace, I think, was the, the caretaker at the where the Eternity Theatre is now. In that's right. Old Tabernacle Hall. Yeah, that's so right. A show about Arthur Stace would be great. Yeah, too. interesting. Well, he was, yeah, he was an interesting character. They've actually done an opera about him. Right. And uh, there's been a couple of documentary films about him. But he's a, a very... Um, Whereas B was rambunctious and, and funny and, and uh, extroverted, he was the opposite because no one knew who was writing Eternity. There was this beautiful copper plate writing of Eternity that would appear all over the footpaths uh, of Sydney uh, and when the people were going to work, they'd see a new incarnation of this and no one knew who it was writing it. And apparently it turned out that he was a guy who had a religious uh, conversion and uh, thought that, that was his, he was put on earth by... The Lord to write this, not not quite as buzzy as a musical subject as as B, but still fascinating. Yeah. You think any subject can be given a musical treatment? I don't know. I think more and more we're seeing that they can. Mm. You know, I mean, I th- talking about the Hayes American Psycho. You would never <laughs> have thought that that would be a musical, but you know, uh, there it was, and it was, I think, very effective. So, I guess in any narrative, you've got to find those moments that sing. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, with Shout yeah. and Dusty, yeah. you collaborated with two other That's creatives, right. John yes. Michael Hausen and That's Melvin right. Morrow. Well, I worked with John Michael on the um, on the show, um, the Mike Walsh show, as I mentioned uh, before. Um, I worked with John Michael on the Mike Walsh show, producing his uh, Hollywood interviews, and we would go off at Oscar time to uh, LA and uh, and interview people and so we I have a long uh, sort of history with John and so and he was always interested in following up the success of um, Nick Enright's The Boy From Oz with with one about Johnny O'Keefe and it was just a coincidence that Mel Morrow uh, who I also had collaborated with was also a, a, a fan of Johnny O'Keefe and wanted to do that so through the auspices of Kevin Jacobson the three of us sort of got together and wrote that together but uh, no I had a great time writing that with them we went up to up to uh, Kilcare on the central coast and just locked ourselves away and and John would impersonate uh, Johnny's uh, first wife Marianne who was German oh no John you've got to give up the booze I'm not doing the right accent but uh, he was very very funny you know John no no um, I, I the funny thing about working with John was, well, the best story, I think, was when we first went to um, Hollywood. Uh, because the Mike Walsh show was an unknown quantity over there, and John Michael wasn't Mike Walsh, so the publicists were all rather, you know, not very interested. And they'd say, oh, no, well, you know, everything's on hiatus at the moment, and... There's no one really in town, and what is your daytime show? I don't know, and blah blah blah. So it was it was sort of hard, but we were very lucky at that lunch that we were getting these knockbacks because the week before we'd been in uh, New York and we were at Tavern on the Green with John Michael, myself, and Mary, the late Mary Hardy, and in walks Princess Lee Radziwill and Jack Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. And they sat at the table right next to us. And, of course, you know, I'm trying to sort of look but not 
be seen. Whereas John Michael is staring at them like with full bore. And I'm saying, John, stop staring. He said, ah, nah, when am I ever going to see them? <laughs> I'm going to have a good squeeze, you know? And, he's, and then they can see that this is this weird little Australian man <laughs> peering at them. And they sort of, you know, they, they have their lunch and John just does ne- never stops looking at them. Anyway, two weeks later or whatever, we're in Chasen's in LA talking to this uh, executive from Columbia Pictures. And he's saying, um, no, I, do, I don't really think so. I don't think so. In walks Jackie Onassis, walks down the stairs, spots John and thinks like royalty. I, I think I know I this know man. I know this man. Yeah. And he, she walks over to our table and says, hello, how are you? And ah, Mrs. Onassis, lovely to see you. you know? <laughs> and then she floats away to her table. And these guys say, you know Jacqueline Onassis? Ah, yeah, yeah, I interviewed her where we were in uh, in New York. You, you interviewed Well, actually, Liza's, Liza's in town. She's doing um, New York, New York over at Metro, and uh, Jane Fonda's got uh, the China Syndrome coming up. You could probably get interviewed. We could line something up. We got all these wow. interviews, wow. all on the basis of it pays to squeeze. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Oh, and right place, right time, you know. This business yeah, is all about there. the timing, isn't it? You've yeah. got to be there. And it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yeah. So how did you uh, become involved with The Mike Walsh Show? Was that one of your first TV gigs? Uh, yeah, it was. I was, um, as I mentioned before, I was writing number 96 and uh, the dreaded unisexes and a few soapy certain women for the ABC. But the work was sporadic. And uh, so I, I took a, a job as a... As a Usher at the State Theatre, which at that stage is before they'd done it up. This is the State Theatre in um, Sydney, the right. picture, movie picture palace. And uh, it was a real flea pit. It used to show sort of por- softcore porn, frustrated oh, really? wives and oh, the yeah. sex thief. And um, and I had to wear an orange dinner jacket and uh, show people to their seats or, or more often as not flash during the porn sessions, flash my torch on the gentleman the sitting, raincoat a, sitting alone so <laughs> to make sure they didn't ruin the velour on the seat. Uh, and then, then you, and when there were things that women came to see, there was often screams from the, um, from the butterfly restroom because rats would often oh, no. be found oh, floating in the toilets. It was really the pits. And, uh, and then the school holidays came and they put on Bruce Lee, uh, you know, kung fu movies. And the theatre was packed with kids and of course they wanted to practice their kung fu as soon as they'd seen the film and who was the first person they saw is a great goon like me wearing an orange dinner jacket and hey yeah you know lots of bruised knees it was really terrible and i just thought i cannot bear this any longer so i went down there was a there, there was a uh, telephone booth in the foyer of the state theatre and i went in there and i put my money in and i called my agent who was actually an actress Liz Kirby, uh, Tony Llewellyn Jones's mother, and she was uh, working on Number Ninety Six at Channel Ten Studios as an actress. And I said, "Liz, it's David here. Oh, sorry, David, I haven't got anything for you at the moment." I said, "No." She was Edith Sutcliffe, wasn't yeah, she? Yeah, Lucy Sutcliffe. Lucy Sutcliffe. Yeah. Right. And uh, I haven't got anything for you at the moment. And I said. Um, well, look, I watch the Mike Walsh show every day before I come to work at this godforsaken theatre. And I could work on that show quite easily. I know, virtually, I know every person that they have on, or they, you know, know more about them than Mike seems to know. So, can you ask him? Because Mike Walsh's show was at Channel 10 at that stage and across the corridor from number 96. Can you talk to him and see if they've got a job for a researcher or a producer on that show? Anyway. She went and saw Mike and David Price, the producer, and it was that they were looking for writer researchers. So I came in for an interview. I wore glasses in those days before I had my eyes lasered, but I decided to um, not wear my glasses and I put, I had these green contact lenses. And I, so I had bright green eyes <laughs> and I came in for this, this um, interview and Mike and David seemed to like me and thought I was okay. So they said, you can start on next Monday so I put my notice into the State Theatre like I won't be in tomorrow and then uh, showed up at Channel 10 Studios with my glasses on and they said 
but what happened? Where are your green eyes? And I said, oh, they were just contact lenses. He said, oh, that's the only reason why we hired you. <laughs> we were amazed by your eyes. So, um, but I got the job and, and uh, worked in it for oh, about five years, I think. So was it, were you learning the job on the job? I virtually, mean, look, yeah. it, we were all learning the job on the job. There were no, like the Mike Walsh show as a midday talk show. Was, was the first of its kind. It was the first of its kind. And it was totally different from the American models because that they they were much more star orientated, uh, Dinah Shaw show, Mike Douglas, those sort of shows. Whereas we didn't have enough stars to have on these shows, and so we had to invent our own. And John Michael House and Dr. Wright, Jeannie Little, all these people were just ordinary people. Bev Gledhill. Bev Gledhill. And we just invited them on and made stars out of them. And we also covered, before Donahue or anything in America, covered some quite serious subjects. I remember um, Michael Douglas came out here with um, to promote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest that he produced. And he was in the uh, green room waiting to go on. And uh, there was a, a woman being interviewed by Mike called Fern Smith and she had she had postnatal depress- depression and had killed her own child. And this was a very serious interview. And Michael Douglas says, I'm not gonna follow that. I said, oh, no, we always, we, we do serious and then we do light. Don't worry about it. No, no, I'm not following that woman killed her, threw the goddamn kid on the floor. I'm not going to go and do that. I'm not going to go on. So I rang down to David Price on the floor and said, look, um, Mr. Douglas doesn't want to appear after Fern Smith. Can we put something else in? And he said, sure, sure, we've got Max Bygraves on, on the show, so we'll, we'll put him on first. So we're sitting there and I said, don't worry, they've, they've got song and dance man from England on, that that should be fine. So he came on and Mike said, oh, Max, you know, we haven't seen you on the show for some time. What's happened in the last year and a half? He said, oh. he said well, my, my daughter committed suicide. Oh, no. <laughs> Michael Douglas said, I'm not going on after that. So we got an electrician or something to fill the gap and finally he went on. Oh, wow. But uh, it was something new. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, when Mike was on holidays, you attracted those fabulous uh, guest hosts like Cilla Black and Des O'Connor. And yeah, De- yeah, and Debbie Reynolds. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, who else? And we had Lauren Bacall out for a week of shows. Um, we had uh, Peter Euston off for a week of shows. It was fantastic. Mm. They were great. They were terrific days. And, and, and sometimes if we didn't have any stars, we used to go on ourselves uh, and, you know, like I would tell stories of uh, having been a school teacher in London um, and David Lyle, you know, who, who ended up as a very big Hollywood executive, TV executive, would go on and talk about his, his time as, you know, travel disasters or dinner party disaster stories. We just, you know, we learned to tell anecdotes in those days. That's probably why I'm still doing it. Do you think we'll uh, see a time again uh, of variety shows like that or is variety now... Morphed into a different experience. Yeah, I I doubt it. Everyone, that's one thing, you know, you see on Facebook, the people that were around in those days mourn the fact that... They want to see another Lane show or a Walsh show. They do, But, well, the thing is, they're they're expensive. They're really expensive to produce. And the ratings don't... Because it's not... To see music on TV, you can see video clips. You just go to YouTube, see whatever you want. So there's no great thrill of having... You know, an artist come on and sing a song, yeah. and um, and they they still do variety shows, but they they're usually wrapped around a, t- a television um, reality t- uh, talent quest, really, yeah. you know, like an X Factor or or the um, Australian Idol or you know one of these shows. And so uh, I don't honestly don't think. I mean, the Rove thing was a total disaster earlier mm. on. It went to one ep- one area, two eps, two, two eps, uh, and but. They had no band. I mean, they, you know, they were saying it's bringing back variety, but you know, if you can't even play your guests on with a bit of music. You can, you can, they can't afford to. The, the budgets are just so low, and that's why the American shows see a Tonight Show, a James Corden show, or whatever. Those shows are cheap in American terms because mm. their shows cost millions and millions of dollars an hour. Mm. Um, they're they're prime time shows, so those shows for an audience that's 10 times bigger than Australia they can afford to spend big money on those tonight shows so that's why we we just get them from America right
which is very sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even those conversation shows, which uh, people like Michael Astle and Michael Parkinson sort yeah. of paved the way, we've really only got Graham Norton now, I suppose, who sort of. Ah, uh, yeah, Jonathan own. Ross still does does yeah. one, but we only see that spos. Spasmodically, I was saying, like Dory Evans, spasmodically. But again, with Jonathan Ross, and I suppose I felt the same about Letterman as well, they have to be the centre of attention and, and the star, whereas yeah. people like Parkinson and Astle let yeah. their guests yeah, well, well, be the focus. W- well, I did the Parkinson series in Australia for some years, and I did Clive James' series in, in London and the Dame Edna series, and um, Parky always did a lot of research and and he knew what the answers to the questions were and he was there to facilitate the guests looking good and Mike Walsh was too mm. Mike didn't want it I mean Kerry Ann when she took over she wanted to be the star of the show always uh, and uh, and that wears the audience out I think yeah, yeah. I mean they really like to see people come on and shine and Mike was never that's why I loved having Jeannie and all those people on because he knew he just would have to say what have you been up to Jeannie it's like George Burns and Gracie Allen you know how's your week been Gracie and then settle back and just feed the material for them to to play with that's right yeah this is your life a huge fan of this is your life and I often wish it would come back Uh, yeah it would be very hard to do I uh, yeah again I did that for nine years I think um it would be hard to do nowadays because of social media. Yeah, you, you know, can't keep, keep anything just quiet. Just keeping or, it quiet, even yeah. though I must say, I've been to a couple of surprise parties that have been organised on Facebook with a closed group, and they seem to, to work. Or the people pretend to be surprised anyway, whether they really are surprised or not. Um, but I loved doing that show. It was uh, like throwing a surprise party every week, and because we always had a party afterwards, and the, the um, guest of honour was surrounded by people they really liked in most cases. Um, it was really good, a good feeling, a really good show to do. Yeah, it's a great format. Did that originate in the UK or no, was in, it American? In, in America, it was a guy called Ralph Edwards was a radio uh, journalist and he was given a job by one of the networks to interview war heroes about, you know, this was after, after World War II, about their exploits. And he came home and said to his wife I, they won't talk about what they've done they, they, you know they they're too modest or it's too traumatic for them mm. to talk I, you know i don't think i can make this show and the wife said well why don't you get the people that were associated with them their family and and their colleagues in war etc to come on and tell tell the story through their words and he did that and called it this is your life did it on radio for some years and then moved it to television then it went to England, then came here to Australia in the 70s on Channel 7, then was put to bed for a while until I suggested that we revive it you know, in 1995, and it ran, oh, well, 10 or 11 years. Great. Yeah, it was great fun to do. What about those great shows at Conchellas and Capriccio's that uh, uh, you're responsible with? with yeah, the, with I know. The creative team there. I They're know. still talked about today very fondly. <laughs> well, again, Capriccio's was... Um, it was a seedy little drag club, but the owners of it really wanted to put on a show, and they didn't. They they financed these shows, and they were hugely lavish. I mean, the, the production teams uh, were worked all night. They virtually worked for no money. Some of them slept upstairs above the. It was like a drag kibbutz. Uh, <laughs> sleep on palliasses, you know, knocked out by the smell of 450 glue while they were putting sequins on all these frocks. I love that. W- reviews like Which Witch is Which, yeah, The right. Lineup, Tropical yeah. Nights, Hollywood Wax, Ballroom, Aladdin, <laughs> Didgeridrag. Now, Didgeridrag was our most successful show. That was an Australian-themed show. Yeah. Uh, all the songs were either Australian or or related to Australia. And uh, on, open, uh, on the um, dress rehearsal... Ross Coleman, who was the choreographer, and David Penfold, who was my co-director, both said this is going to be the biggest disaster that's ever hit the stage. Will only last a couple of weeks. And ran over a year. And of course, they used to pay me in cash out of the till every Friday, uh, every Sunday night. So I, you know, could pop in, to, you know, get a wad of bills, and that, that added to my um, TV salary. And we used Jeannie as little as a voice on the show. Geraldine Turner. Um, June Salter, um, Tony Sheldon, 
you know, uh, Shirley Cameron, Judy Farr, Tina Bursall, you know, all these. And then the drags would lip sync those voices. Right? And but the funny thing is, when we did the show in um, a, a later one at, at at a place called which they called Lagos, which wasn't Lagos. Uh, that Eric Dare owned opposite the Aubrey Hotel in Oxford Street. We did a, a version of Cinderella with Beatrice. And uh, we'd recorded the soundtrack. And one of the ugly sisters uh, you know, had the hormone heebies or something and dro- dropped out. And we we had to find someone to take over. And there were, there were no drag queens available. So we, my next door neighbour was Maggie Kirkpatrick. <laughs> so I said, Maggie, can you play one of the ugly sisters in a drag show? She said, oh, love, you know, why not? You know, so she had to come on. Carlotta was the other ugly sister. And Maggie uh, came on every night as an ugly sister, miming to Geraldine Turner's voice, because that voice was already de- recorded. And uh, she had the time of her life. And she's written about it in her, 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 her new book. Her new book. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's said that six degrees of separation, we can usually trace a connection to someone. But with you, I suspect it's two degrees of separation, <laughs> the people that you've met. Uh, can you tell us a bit about Kenneth Williams? Uh, oh, Kenneth Williams. Well, he, we had him as a guest on the Michael Parkinson show. We flew out some um, celebrity guests for that show. We had uh, Billy Connolly, Kenneth. Hayley Mills, um, uh, June Allison, and we, you know, we had got some of the oldies there. Jo- uh, Joan Fontaine, who gave Patty Moston a pearl earrings that she admired. Um, but anyway, Kenneth was very funny. He did two shows. Uh, he, he, we took him out on on the harbour on a boat, and he had a great time. And but he said he wanted to uh, meet some people. Um, in, involved in the Purple Onion, which was a drag show even before Capriccio's, and of course that ch- that that uh, club had closed many years before. But I happened to know Candy Johnson, who was the owner of the Purple Onion, so I thought, oh well, he, I can have a dinner party and invite him, and invite Candy. Well, Kenneth arrived and was in a very bad mood and said, just um, you know, just. I've had terrible diarrhea. Just give me a you know warm tonic water. Anyway, so we thought, oh, this is going to be a fun night. And uh, so he sat down, and somehow we were talking about Peter Finch. And he said, oh, Peter Finch. People asked him how much money he made all the time, and he, he got so furious he th- he used to throw them out. He had an island in in the Bahamas, and he'd just say, go get a boat, get a ferryman. Don't ask me how much I made because it's a Oh, it's an absolute, you know, insult to someone to ask what they made. Anyway, bing bong, the door rings, Candy comes in. Hello, hello, this is Candy Johnson, this is Kevin, uh, Kevin um, Kenneth Williams. Oh, hello. He said, how much money did you use to make in those carry-on movies? <laughs> so the die was cast. And uh, he sort of, his lips went to string. And we went out, we, we actually went to a, a local Italian restaurant. And Kenneth was not very happy, and he was sat next to Candy, and Candy kept telling him licentious stories about, you know, orgasms and smashing eggs on your chest and things like that. And Kenneth was very, even though he was a, a gay man, he d- didn't like any sort of dirty talk, so he was you know, really quite furious. And he said, this is hideous. No entrees. Uh, no entrees. Let's just have the main main course. And um, so I called down the table to my wife and David Lyle's wife, uh, no entrees. And they said, oh, no, we want entrees. Oh, so anyway, <laughs> he said, this is just hideous. He said, next they'll be singing waiters. And then suddenly, la donne mobile. No, that was a fun night. Oh. What about Bacall? Because she could be prickly, I hear. She, yeah, she was okay. She was, um, she just was rather high-handed. Um, I remember because Mike Walsh at that stage owned a picture theatre before we owned the Cremorne Orpheum. He owned a picture theatre out at uh, Richmond, the Richmond Regent. And he also had a radio station in Mornington called CFM or something like that down in Melbourne. So he said, I, you know, I, I have this picture theatre and I have this radio station. He said, she said, you're a regular little Howard Hughes, aren't you? <laughs> uh, but, but she was OK. She was fine. So an extraordinary amount of uh, Hollywood royalty that you, you've come into contact with. I, I don't suppose you ever came into contact with the real thing. Oh, I did on a couple of occasions. Uh, I hosted, uh, well, I hosted 
Charles uh, and Di, or I introduced them to the cast of my bicentennial concert. And I was very nervous because I had to remember their, the names of all the artists. And Air Supply were there, and it was, um, it was Russell Hitchcock and Graham Russell. So I'm thinking Russell Hitchcock, Graham Russell, Graham Hitchcock, and Russell Hitchcock, Graham Russell. And I, uh, Princess Diana said, they came down the line, I said, this is Air Supply, this is uh, Graham Hitchcock and Russell Russell. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very nice. But but I also um, was lucky enough to uh, have Princess Anne on my Parkinson show, uh, and we did a one-woman show with her, uh, with a little add-on of Captain Mark Phillips as well, and uh, she was very nice. And we, uh, as an sort of an interview uh, research exercise she was invited to come to lunch at michael parkinson's apartment in darling point and um at the old loretto apartments there that he had a place and mary parkinson who was was you know from a mining family as was michael was just so overwhelmed that she was going to have the princess royal in her apartment and she went out and she bought new uh, crockery you know a whole new crockery set new napery she did everything you know because she was always told you know always be dressed and have your house ready in case royalty come and visit well today they were coming to visit but she was petrified that she wouldn't she'd either be overdressed or underdressed so um, princess anne was staying at the boulevard hotel in um, in um, william street and mary got michael's chauffeur John Cott who's a mad Irishman to sit and wait outside the Boulevard Hotel to see what Princess Anne was wearing so then he would have to then no, no mobile phones in those days run to the phone booth and ring Mary and tell her what she what Princess Anne was wearing and Mary had about six outfits laid out on the on the bed and she could choose one that's appropriate but of course John Cott being a mad Irishman knew absolutely nothing about fashion and what clothes are called so princess anne comes out and she, and he goes to the phone booth and says yes she's come out she's she's in the car she's on her way and, and mary said yes well what is she wearing what is she wearing oh well she's sort of wearing a like a a, a suit a, oh she's wearing a suit yeah like a like a sun suit <laughs> a sun suit or a suit they're totally different things <laughs> well no like like a pantsuit a pantsuit or a sunsuit <laughs> a sun, or a sundress no <laughs> anyway finally she um she she got you know the right thing to wear and Anne arrived and was all quite charming and uh they're chatting away and princess Anne tells that that story about the queen being uh at a banquet with a sheik and uh, there were finger bowls all uh, out on the on the on the table and uh, with slices of lemon in in them and uh, the sheik didn't know what they were for uh, and started to drink them and the or drink his and the queen followed suit because she didn't want the the sheik to be embarrassed by such a thing anyway Anne told the story and got lots of laugh and David La um, my associate producer said oh well maybe it was the slices of lemon made made her think uh, that it was a a dish uh, a soup and she said oh yes but but you never put slices of lemon in, in finger bowls it's totally the wrong thing to do it's very non-you and Mary's eyes just sort of went back in her head and she sort of backed into the kitchen pulling out, <laughs> pulling out slices of lemons and throwing them like frisbees out the window onto the lawn of King Coppel so that was a lunch to, to be remembered you're one of our great storytellers um, and I, don't, I mean, just as anecdotes, but also in the narratives that you've created for the stage. Have you thought about writing a book? Uh, I don't think anyone would buy it. <laughs> really? No, I, I think showbiz memoirs have to be really by the main players. You know, I think the really good showbiz books that have come out are, are ones where the reader can envisage that person. Yeah. And... Uh, and even though one one that is my favourite showbiz biography ever is Moss Hart's Act One, yeah. uh, and people don't really know Moss Hart, but usually the books, the, the David Nivens books and these Shelley Winters and uh, Lauren Bacall and Sally Field and all these books, you can pinpoint who the person is. 
Unfortunately, our job is to toil uh, in the background. In fact, doing a talk show, uh, Chris Greenwood, who also worked on Parkinson, um, said that it's a bit like holding onto someone's coattails while they're making love. You know, you get all the action, but you don't get any of the pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> well, we look forward to um, getting more action from you, perhaps on social media. Ah, uh, thank you. That way, David. Thank you for talking to Stages today. You've been on my wish list from day one, so uh, it is a great joy to uh, to sit down and record. Well, this I've enjoyed this today. little walk down memory lane. Thank you very much, Peter. This is why it's important to subscribe and listen to Stages. Uh, on a weekly basis. Great conversations like that one with David Mitchell, uh, a font of knowledge, and um, uh, didn't uh, didn't we hear some wonderful stories? Uh, now listen, I know you're subscribed because you're listening now probably, but have you rated and reviewed the podcast yet? Please do so. It's helping to, uh, to spread the word. Stages, uh, the podcast is certainly taking off around about now. Um, people are starting to, to learn about it and gather all of the fabulous stories that uh, we cover from week to week. Um, as always, it's been a pleasure to have you with us. Um, I'll see you next time. No, I won't see you. I'll, you'll hear me. Uh, I'll catch you. Next time on Stages, I'm Peter Eyes. Thanks for listening.